Okay, if you had to guess and imagine what would you say is the most often repeated commandment in the Bible, what would your guess be? And seminarians and seminary professors are not allowed to answer, but for the, mo the rest of us, if, if you had to imagine what would be the most often repeated commandment, what is it that God probably has to tell humanity over and over and over again? Now, I imagine maybe some of us would imagine maybe it's something to do with sex because the Bible is very conservative and a bit prudish and so it's probably don't commit adultery or who you can be with or not be with. Or you might imagine maybe it's, it's God seems really committed to everyone worshiping him. He doesn't really like idols, so don't make idols. Have no other God besides me. Maybe it's something about not killing someone or not stealing from someone. Any of those kinds of commandments. And yet, I think at least the first time I heard it, it surprised me to know the commandment that is repeated more often than any other in the Bible is do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. In fact, if you're listening carefully through these weeks of the Christmas story, you've already heard that said a few times. There's a refrain that keeps getting repeated over and over again. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Do not be afraid. And for me, I think that it's probably a very timely word because I think that if there's one word that I could use to describe what it seems like our world is like, if there was one word that I, I think captures the moment in time we're living in, as I watch social media or listen to the news, if there's one word that captures it all, it's, it's probably fear. We live in a time of heightened fear, of almost unprecedented fear. 9-11 introduced the word terrorism into our vocabulary. And it's never gone, and in fact, it seems like now that word keeps popping up more and more than ever before. In fact, the New York Times had an article just this week saying that a recent poll said that more Americans are afraid of a terrorist attack than at any time since the weeks right after 9-11. Unprecedented, heightened levels of fear, and with good reason. You turn on the evening news and you hear of ISIS in the Middle East, or you hear of the attacks abroad in France, or the attacks at home in California. Everything is sort of pushing this forward to us. Uh, this week alone, if you watched the news or you turned on social media, if you went on Facebook, just about everyone was talking about politics and the presidential race. Everywhere you looked, there was an article on one opinion or another about Donald Trump and his latest proposal regarding banning Muslims. Now, here's what I want to say. I have no desire to give you political commentary, but liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, wherever you are, Everyone sort of agrees that what's being played up is fear. What's being appealed to is sort of the heightened sense of fear that the entire country is in. Now, for you, even if it's not stuff way out there on the other side of the world or even the other side of the country, it, it could just be the stuff that's right around us. In fact, you heard what Pastor Benu led us to pray for. It doesn't have to be on the other side of the world. I mean, literally down the street. We're talking maybe two miles from here, if that, on Varee Road, George Washington High School, this week's report was that they have a new principal and the sort of straw that broke the camel's back was that there was two students that went into a classroom. They ripped the phone out of the wall so that the teacher couldn't call down to the principal. Two of them held him up while the other one pummeled and assaulted him unconscious to, to, to finally the point that now a new principal was needed. I mean, and, and when you hear that, you begin to wonder, what does that mean for us? 
and for our neighborhood? What does that mean for our children? And, and we begin to ask the kinds of questions like, what's happening? What's our city coming to? The larger question of what's our world coming to? The question like, what kind of world will our children inherit? And will it be safer than the ones that we inherited? And, and then there are, of course, the stuff that doesn't appear on screens. and doesn't show up on Facebook. There's just the anxieties and worries and fears that plague the corridors of your own mind, the corridors of your own heart. Now, it can seem like we are living in almost unprecedented time, almost like there's been no one in history who could possibly relate to the kind of instability or even insecurity that we might feel, and yet our passage this morning is going to take us to a time in world history, and Luke wants you to know very clearly this is world history. This is not a fable, so the story doesn't begin in chapter 2 with once upon a time. No, he starts with, in those days, a decree went from Caesar Augustus. He roots it in history so that you know this thing really happened. And our passage takes us to a time when the world felt every bit as fragile as it does today. When there was a longing for stability and safety and security, for peace, for shalom to come. Every bit of that desire. And into that first century world, here's what I want you to hear. Good news was announced. And the good news was that there was one person who came who could finally usher in peace. In that world, the name of that person was Caesar Augustus. There, there was a great deal of hope in this one person who could come in and usher in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And all the hope of the empire was around this one person. I looked up some of the background. Luke mentions him in 2 verse 1, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is originally known as Octavius. And for those of you that love history, you may know this already. But Caesar Augustus, or originally called Octavius, was Julius Caesar's great nephew. Julius Caesar was killed at Tu Brute, and when he was killed, he had no legitimate heirs, and so he adopted his great nephew as his heir. Octavius became then the Caesar. He became the first emperor of Rome, and he changed his name so that everyone would know there was a connection here. He went from Octavius to Octavius Caesar. Everyone needed to know this was Caesar's son, and eventually time passed to the point that he adopted another name, Augustus. Augustus, which means holy or revered or sacred. So this was the holy Caesar. This was Augustus Caesar. And over time, Julius Caesar became deified as a god. And so Octavius took on a new title. He became the son of the deified one. The son of the divine, or as we would say it, he became the son of God. Here's the holy Augustus, son of God. And in fact, you even have an inscription that says to the whole world, there was an announcement about his birthday. Every way his birthday was to be celebrated. And the inscription read, here is the savior of the world. And so the hope of the Roman Empire is, yes, we live in a fragile world. Yes, things are dangerous. But take great hope because the holy son of God sits on the throne. The savior of the world has ushered in Pax, the peace of Rome. And that is sort of the background when Luke starts writing his gospel. And in Luke chapter 2, Augustus Caesar, 
who is the center of everything in the world, the center of all power, of all prestige, the hope of the world, he, as one preacher says, becomes nothing more than a footnote as Luke begins to introduce you to another king. In those days, a decree went out from Augustus Caesar. And he throws Augustus in as just a footnote to introduce you to a better savior of the world and to the true son of God and to the true and better Caesar. Caesar meant kurios or Lord. You, you called Caesar Lord. Here was now the true Caesar who was going to be born. And he wasn't born into a palace like you'd imagine. He was born, Luke 2, 1 through 7, into a manger, into a feeding trough for animals. He didn't come with an iron fist. He came weak and vulnerable, fragile into a fragile world as the Most High became the Most Low. And he didn't come with his birthday announced across the empire. No, his birthday was announced to some shepherds who were feeding their flocks at night. You see, Luke is trying to say, into a dangerous and fragile and unstable and insecure world, there is good news for those who are afraid. No, not the good news of Caesar Augustus back then. And he would say into our world, no, not the good news that if you just get the right person elected, or pass just the right law, or implement just the right policy, or move from here to just the right safe neighborhood, no, the hope of a fragile world is there has been born to you someone. The hope of the world is Christmas. Here's the point, Luke would say. You need to. Are you afraid? You have something in your life you're afraid of, whether it's big, global, or hidden in your tiny heart? Then Luke says, look at Christmas. You need it more than you think. So let me read for you verse 8 on. Let me pray for a moment, and then I'll show you verse 8. We're just going to cover two verses or so this morning. God, we pray that you would now point us to your word, and in pointing us to your word, you would point us to your son. We are weak and afraid and feeble, and oh, today we need the sovereign, strong, powerful, loving God to come, put his arm around us and comfort us. Come near, draw near, oh God, and show us that you've done that in Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 8. And in the same region, so Luke chapter 2, verse 8, if you've got a Bible, it's New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, there's a Bible in front of you. Luke 2, verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And here's what I want you to pay attention to. And they were filled with great fear. Great fear. Now, we said already, this isn't the first time that fear is the response at Christmas. This isn't the first time that you see fear show up in the Christmas stories. No, if you were here last week, we said that when John, the cousin of Jesus, his birth was announced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, the old priest. If you remember, as soon as Zechariah sees the presence of God through the angel, it was, don't be afraid, fear. Then one story later, what we looked at last week, when Mary was told of the birth of Jesus, that she, by the Holy Spirit, would conceive Jesus Christ, what shows up? Fear. And it's the same thing here with the shepherds as well. In fact, it may be helpful to you to know that just about any time when God shows up to someone, the immediate response is fear. I mean, take that in. It's not 
love. It's not joy. It's not, oh, we're so glad you're here. It's not wonder or amazement. The immediate response, whenever God seems to show up in the scriptures, is to be terrified. It's to have your knees knock. It's for your body to quake, for something to have to happen to calm you down. In fact, the very first scene that you see, this is all the way at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, when they sin, when they do what God told them not to do, and their relationship with God is now broken and fractured, the immediate response is fear. God shows up and they hide from him. They run into the bushes. They're hoping that the all-seeing God won't be able to see them behind some shrubbery because they're scared. They're afraid of him. Now, that's an important insight for you to keep in mind. It's insightful because what that means is that at the bottom of all of our fears, when you get down all the way to the bottom, at the very bottom of what we're afraid of is the reality that we're out of sync with God, that there's something wrong with our relationship with God. Or as one preacher said it this way, if you had a perfect relationship with God, you wouldn't be afraid. If you had a perfect relationship with God, you'd be fearless. You'd have no fear. I mean, just think through it. We're afraid of, of, of failure. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of being ashamed. We're afraid of being exposed. And yet, that fear, if you look at it and look under it, that fear speaks to us. It tells us something. You see, what, is, what it tells you is that underneath your worst nightmare is, is actually, ironically, a revelation to you of what your greatest hopes are and your greatest dreams are. Uh, underneath your worst nightmare is actually your biggest dreams because underneath your nightmare, it begins to reveal to you what you actually value the most, what you think you need the most, what you actually think you, your life depends on, what your life can't live without. Uh, underneath your worst fear is actually what you're building your life and your dreams on. It's, it's what you trust in most, what you think brings you most security or satisfaction in life. You see, if, if losing my job or, or losing money is my worst nightmare, then underneath that fear begins to reveal what I really am banking my life on, what gives me a sense of security and stability, what I feel like I need and trust in. If, if being rejected or if being ashamed, or being a, a failure is, is the worst thing that can happen to me, then underneath that fear, it begins to reveal what I value the most is acceptance, or being approved of, or being accepted by folks. Now, if I had a perfect relationship with God, if I was like Jerry Maguire and he completes me kind of thing, if, if I was saturated, full of his love and his acceptance, if I was complete in him, lacking nothing, needing nothing, perfect relationship with him, then disapproval or rejection wouldn't devastate me because I was complete, I was full, I was saturated with his love and his acceptance. Or, or think, we, we're afraid of the future, right? Fear tends to be that way. It's often future-oriented. You're often dreading what's going to happen. And when it comes around, it's often not as bad as what you were afraid of, but those hours leading to it were dreadful because you feared the worst. That's the way it's oriented. It, we fear the future because who knows what could happen. 
There's accidents or tragedies. There's diseases. There's loss. There's difficulty. There's death. And, and for us, who knows what's just around the corner? I mean, who, who knows what happens when you leave here? Who knows what's going to happen this week or this month or this year? And so we're afraid. But underneath that fear, it begins to speak to us. It, it exposes to us, look, what that reveals is I'm not in control. Right? I'm, I'm scared to death because I don't know what's going to happen. Things do happen. And all of that shouts to us, you're not in control. I'm not in control. And deep down, we don't like not being in control. It's like if you drive often, what's it like for you when you're the passenger? When I drive with Shainu, and I want you to know, Shainu is an infinitely better driver than I am. I'm actually, you didn't have to say amen to that. <laughs> I, I drive like a distracted old lady. Like, I'm, I'm very bad at driving. Shainu's a very good driver. But when I'm in the passenger side, what am I doing? I am pressing down on that imaginary brake as hard as I can. She's getting close to the curb. If I had a wheel right now, I would pull that thing as hard as I could, right? Because sitting there on that side, strapped in, I am totally out of control. And for us, it feels like life works that way. Like you've been buckled into the passenger seat and you're being taken for a ride that you can't control. And that doesn't sit well with us. Because we're so desperately pushing on that brake or turning that wheel. Because deep down we feel like life would work better if I were at the wheel. Now, if I had a perfect relationship with God, I wouldn't need to be in control because I'd know that he's in control. I would sit there in the passenger seat humming a tune because the best driver in the world is driving this car. I don't have a worry in the world because if I had a perfect relationship with God, I would have complete confidence in his control, in his sovereignty, that everything that happens happens by his purposes and his plans and he's good and he's going to get me to where I need to be safe and secure. I'd have not a worry in the world. You see, what fear begins to reveal to us is my relationship with God is a bit more broken than I think. I don't trust him just as much as I think I do. I haven't given as much control to him as I think I have. Deep down, there's a, a seed of unbelief. My fears reveal what I trust in, what I bank on, what I value. And my fears reveal to me that it's ultimately not God. At least not always God. There's a bit of dysfunction in my relationship with God. And moreover, what's worse is if you're honest, there's a part of you that even thinks, I'd be better at this if he would just let me at the wheel. My life would work better if he would just do things the way that I think they should go. Safer, happier, more secure that way. You, you see, in the human heart, there's a constant power struggle for who gets to be God. It's like every day in your heart, there's a new election cycle over and over again as you're fighting for who gets to sit in that office. Who gets to make the decisions and call the shots and run the show. Our fears reveal that we're not as close to God as we may think we are. And yet, here's the irony that Luke shows us. Yet the irony is, our fears are because we're not near God, and yet when God does come near, we're even more afraid. Would you hear that? One preacher said it rightly. We're, we're afraid because we're not as close to God as we think, and yet when he actually does come near, 
We're even more afraid. Isn't that what Luke shows us? The angel appeared. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Right? That's a way of saying that God's presence was right there. And they are, the text says, filled with great fear. Great fear. In fact, I heard it that it, was, it could be translated as sort of megaphobia. That's the words used here. It's megaphobic. It's not just fear. They feared a great fear. They're terrified. So why is that? Why is it that when we're not close to God, we're afraid, but that when he comes close, we're even more afraid? We're mega afraid. One preacher said it like this. He said, imagine that you were impersonating a police officer. Now, you're walking the streets impersonating a police officer. You might be afraid. You might be a bit nervous. But imagine a real police officer came to you. Now you would be megaphobic. You would be terrified. Right? If you're acting like someone who's smart, you're spouting off knowledge, you're, you're pretending, you're proud about your intelligence, that's one thing. Imagine a real genius shows up next to you. Right? It's like that scene from Goodwill Hunting. You remember when he's in the bar and he, the, the guy is showing off all his knowledge, but then the genius shows up. How about them apples? That, that scene? Right? It's one thing to act that way, but when someone who really is that way shows up, you're, you're megaphobic. It's one thing for you to act like you can run your life. And yet when the true God shows up, it exposes you for a sham. It exposes you and you become mega terrified. When the real God shows up. And yet, in the most surprising twist, what does the real God show up when he said? What does the real God say when he shows up? Don't be afraid. If I'm impersonating a cop and a cop comes to me, it would be the surprise of my life if he showed up and he said, don't be afraid. I'm not here to harm you or hurt you. I'm actually here to help you. The real God shows up to us pretenders, imposters, and impersonators, and he shows up to us and he says, don't be afraid. I haven't come to harm you. I haven't come to hurt you. Don't be afraid. And, and, and friends, he doesn't even say it the way that we might say it to one another. When you and I tend to say to someone who's afraid, don't be afraid, we're, we're more often than not just saying it so that they can stop annoying us. Your spouse is scared to death of flying, right? So you buckle in, you go, don't worry, you have nothing to be afraid of, so that I can just go back to reading my magazine, right? Just stop. And then you might even spout out some logic, right? Actually, flying is safer than driving. You have more chances of dying driving than flying. And, and that does what? Nothing, Right? Because fear doesn't submit to logic. It's not like you just need one rational thought and fear goes away. Fear has sticky glue around it. it. It's stuck to you. And when you're afraid, it's not just a line of logic that's going to help you. It's, it, what you need is a person. If I throw you into the deepest, darkest woods in the world, you would badly want someone to be there with you. A person is what you need in the midst of fear. This week... Brett has a, a dog, a beautiful new dog that he got called Lucy. Now, Shainu and the kids are scared to death of dogs, but they're determined. Shainu's on this quest to overcome her fear of dogs and to make sure that our kids don't inherit her fear. So Brett is playing with Lucy in the backyard. I call Shainu and the kids to come. My kids are petrified. 
petrified, won't, won't even come past the fence while Lucy is going crazy in the backyard, right? Now, here, I could spout out everything in the world to them. What are you afraid of? Don't be afraid. I promise she's not going to bite you. Just come here. She's a nice dog. I mean, I could throw out every truth in the world to her. They didn't come anywhere near the fence. What did it take for them to finally come? It, they needed, essentially, someone that loved them and someone that was powerful. So they, they needed someone that loved them and they needed someone that was powerful. Meaning, I could say all day, just come play with Lucy. It wasn't enough. But when Brett, Lucy's master, said, come here. I've got Lucy. I'm going to hold her. Nothing's going to happen. I promise. That did something to them because they knew Brett has power over Lucy. That's Lucy's master. Lucy listens to Brett. I could talk all day. It didn't matter because I don't have power. But Lucy's master just said she's not going to go anywhere. And he held Lucy. And then a loving mom and a loving dad did their best to say, come. I promise we will not let her come anywhere near you. And we held them and we held the dog as they came near and they pet. By the end of the week, I kid you not, I mean, they're still petrified. We're working on it. But <laughs> Hannah's going, when are we going to get a dog? We should get a dog. What did they need? They needed someone who was for them and someone who had power. Now, what if God, who is the most for you and the most powerful, comes to you in any and every circumstance and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm for you. And I have power. Not someone pretending. I have real power in every circumstance you're going through. And I am more for you than anyone in the world. Don't be afraid. I, I read through just a litany of verses this week of just how often God says that to his people. How often Yahweh in the Old Testament would say that to his people. Let me, let me just read you a few. In Genesis, he's talking to Abraham. And he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God draws near, and in the surprise of the world, he goes, Don't be afraid. In fact, I'm your shield. I'm your reward. And then after Abraham's life, it's going to be Isaac's life, his son. And he comes to Isaac, Genesis 26. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid. For I am with you. So he's coming to this boy Isaac and saying, listen, I've been with your dad his whole life. I'm your God also. Don't be afraid. I'm with you just like I was with him. And then he comes to Isaac's son, to Jacob, and he says this in Genesis 46. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Just like I was with your dad and your granddaddy, I will be with you. So don't be afraid. And then when Jacob has a bunch of sons and they become the nation of Israel, the prophets are saying over and over again, Isaiah 41, Do not be afraid, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I mean, do you see him speaking like a father? Don't be afraid, little Israel. Little one. Don't you be afraid, for I will help you. Isaiah 54, do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the approach of your widowhood. One more, Jeremiah 1 verse 8, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you. And you better know, friends, we could spend hours reading these kinds of promises from God. And then... Luke comes and says, 
the most loving and most powerful person in the world, comes as close to you as possible. In fact, he cannot come any closer than Christmas and says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The, the shepherds are megaphobic. They're terrified. They fear a great fear. And Luke says, no, look how close the most powerful and the most loving one comes. He can't come any closer than this. For behold, look. That's what he says. They're scared to death. And he says, fear not. Don't be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Shepherds, you're quaking. Don't be afraid. Instead, behold, look. I bring you good news of great joy. To you today is born a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. The Lord. The, the word Lord there is the same one in the Old Testament that Yahweh was translated. Same word here. It's, it's, it's Luke's way of saying, the most powerful and most loving being in the universe, the one who made all those promises, is the same being that is this baby. He's here. This baby is that same most powerful, most loving being in the universe. It's here. He is Christ the Lord. And so, behold, look at him. This Christmas, hear the shepherds and their story and hear this one truth for you this morning. Are you afraid? Then look at him. Behold, I have good news of great joy for you. The Lord, he has been born for you. Look at him. Are you afraid of failure? Are you afraid of being rejected? Then behold, I have good news of great joy for you. Look at Jesus. See the one who lives sinlessly and see his arms stretched out on that cross, dying in, hate in your place for your sins. And see that open arm as a posture of his acceptance of you. Let the one who is afraid of rejection see the open arms of Christ as a posture. Look at him and see that the most loving and most powerful being in the universe is for you, accepts you. See, I'm not saying that your fear vanishes. I'm saying what we're calling you to is the fight of faith. That is the only thing that can battle fear. The fight of faith, so that when the fear comes, you fight for faith that says, I'm going to behold and look, for there is good news of great joy. There is one who has accepted me. Are you afraid of loss? Like something you need or something you love is going to be taken from you. Then behold, look in the midst of that fear with faith at him. I bring you good news of great joy and look at Christ who literally lost everything so that your deepest need might be met. And don't just see that as spiritual talk. Hear that into your heart by faith. Your biggest need, your deepest need was met by Jesus Christ. And he did become poor so that you might become rich. So then in the face of fear over losing something, know that. And behold, look at him with faith. Are you afraid of death? Then behold, I bring you good news of great joy, Christ the Lord. So look at him. 
In the midst of your fear, look with faith at him, the one who defeated death by his death, who holds resurrection, who said, nay, I am the resurrection and the life, and who thereby promises you that no matter what happens to you, should your worst nightmare come to pass, should death come to pass, it will not be the last word in your story because he has defeated death and he holds resurrection. So behold, look at him. This Christmas, let this story call us to that, to connect wherever you're afraid with faith to behold him. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Christ the Lord has been born to you. Let's pray together.